0: Hi, this is Ken Clark. I'm the minister of the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. Here's another recording of one of our worship services. These recordings allow us to worship remotely every Sunday, and the services will be posted weekly on our website, and they're also found as a podcast. The podcast is entitled A Walk to Cleo Hall, which you can find on Anchor, Spotify, or other podcast apps. This service is intended for January 24th, 2021. The organist is Jean Marie Callahan, and the preacher is Ken Clark. Mm
1: To Sunday worship at the Old First Church in Bennington, Vermont. Our opening words are found in the order of service, and if you wish, you may join in them responsively. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? Our first hymn, is O God of Earth and Space. us pray. Lord God, your love for humankind, present in the beginning of all things, extends throughout history and touches all life. Your love sees failings and forgives. Your love feels pain and wipes away our tears. Your love knows grief and comforts the sorrowful Forgive us when we fail to live lives that reflect your love. Forgive us the many times when we take for granted all that you have done for us. Transform us through your Spirit and empower us to serve you this day and all days. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. If we confess our faults, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Set for today is selections of the third chapter of Jonah three one through five, and then verse ten I'm going to read straight through from chap from verse one right through verse ten, a little bit of the background to Jonah if by any chance you're not familiar with the story of course he's the fellow who gets taken in by the whale in one big gulp and spends some time in the belly of the whale and then is coughed up again onto land. He's the one who is fleeing God, who who has asked Jonah to preach a harsh word on his behalf, on God's behalf. And Jonah is trying to escape that duty. And we join him now after he's had his excursion, having been pursued by God, out to sea, into the belly of the beast and back onto land. We join Jonah at this point where He's finally decided that he's going to do what he has been asked by God, and this is that story. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk, and he cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human being or animal, no herd or flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, they shall not drink water. Human beings and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God all shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows? God may relent and change God's mind. God may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Here ends our first reading. Our hymn is My Soul in Silence Waits for God. On that last hymn, that's a very good last verse if you are an Arminian, uh, that is someone who believes that good works earn you your salvation versus someone who trusts in grace, more of the Lutheran persuasion, that grace kind of falls from the sky and hits us as God wills and there's really nothing we can do about it, whether we are chosen or not chosen. The Arminian believes that what she or he does can merit, cultivate some of God's favor. In that last verse, for so it is that sovereign grace belongs to you, O Lord, for you, according to our work, shall everyone reward. Of course, we know how it is with Bible verses. People can find countermanding verses and throw one verse against the other. That's how a biblical debate and a division among religious beliefs is created in the first place. But I'm not going to go there today in my sermon. Instead, I'm going to first read to you our second lesson, which is from the Gospel of Mark, that shortest of the four Gospels. In the first chapter, verses 14 through 20, Again, since this is in the first chapter, it's only the 14th verse, so we're very early in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is talking about the time right after the arrest of John the Baptist. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, and believe in the good news." As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called to them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Here ends the second lesson. Today I want to talk about a few things. I don't think anything too heavy, a little bit of a, 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 a biographical digression is by way of illustration for you to look forward to. But I want to begin by looking at these two pieces of um, scripture before us, both the book of Jonah and and the Gospel of Mark. We know the story of Jonah as I've already elaborated it somewhat. Jonah is somebody who is reluctant to do, to even listen to God, to hear what God is asking of him, flees God, uh, doesn't want to do what he's been asked to do. Uh, The second Lesson, the Gospel of Mark is just the startling opposite. The idea of people simply having a brief encounter with Jesus and responding fully and completely, putting down their work, getting up, leaving what they're doing to follow Christ. This is a whole different contrast in itself that one can begin to think about. But even within the book of Jonah, there's a great contrast. Jonah, after he's had such success, preaching to the people of Nineveh and bringing the word of God to them is unhappy that Nineveh was not destroyed. Nineveh, that evil place, as the Bible paints it for us, was spared by God. And Jonah's a little bit upset, saying to God, you asked me to do all these things and now you're letting them off the hook? Well, as a matter of fact, in that section we just read, even the king of Nineveh and all the people are like the disciples in the New Testament. They listen, they hear, they repent, they change. They turn on a dime. Sometimes it seems easy to do. It's if you've done something wrong, you can turn around and just start something new and God will forgive. That's what Jonah's seeing and it upsets him. But in fact, that's what God wants us to do. God wants us to turn around, to stop, to change, to begin anew, to start anew. Before anything in life can change, something has to be said, and someone has to say it. Jonah doesn't seem to get that message in the Old Testament. Before any change can take place, before things can get better, something has to be said, and someone has to say it. Is that prompting of the conscience, perhaps an inner prompting to us, perhaps a message from a friend, perhaps a duty laid upon us to say something in order that there be change. The apostles, the disciples, as they're being called by Jesus, are not yet in that position to say much, but they put themselves in the position of being ready to do what they would have to do. So there's a real difference here, I would say, and it's illustrated in our last hymn as well today. But there's a real difference in two kinds of ministry in these readings. The ministry of Jonah, which is an unparalleled success. People do exactly what he says. He delivers a message from God, and people change, and God forgives. And then there's the ministry of these disciples, these people Jesus calls. As we look at the story, there is not immediate success. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of disappointment. There's a disciple who will betray Christ. There's a disciple who will deny Christ. There are other disciples who are simply confused. They don't get the story straight. And yet, the ultimate question for us is, we compare these two, is to ask ourselves which of these two groups of ministry, types of ministry, is going to be a success. I want to spend a few more minutes on the Gospel of Mark and how it begins. We know that Mark is the shortest of Gospels, and it's easy as you read the lectionary every week to come to believe that it's just one story upon another story and not get a full feel for the entire gospel, which is one reason why I would recommend to anybody out there who is listening or anyone sitting in the pews that you read entire gospels or chapters from time to time to get a feel for what's going on. We know Mark is the briefest of the gospels, and the other thing that is remarkable about this gospel is that it has no birth story. We are so excited about Christmas and just coming off the Christmas season, it's easy to dwell on the Gospels that tell an elaborate story of the birth of Jesus. But here's this Gospel of Mark, which scholars mostly believe is a really early Gospel, one of the uh, ones that contain the kind of the bare bones nub of what's essential. And Mark leaves out a story of how Jesus was born. There's no mention here of the Virgin Mary. There's no mention here of Magi, wise men. From the East. There is no shepherds or stars or Bethlehem. Instead, Mark starts out the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He quotes Isaiah and John the Baptist, and he spoke speaks very briefly in the first thirteen verses about the work of John the Baptist, proclaiming there is one more powerful coming after me. And then the transition. What's the transition? The birth of Christ? No. The transition is Jesus is passing along the Sea of Galilee. We begin right in the middle of Jesus' ministry. And we begin with this section of Jesus appearing to gather his disciples. Giving them a mission. Giving them a job. Giving them work. A very different kind of work than they're used to. I like to think about the Gospel of Mark in one curious way. It ends as briefly and quickly as it begins. There's no long story after the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's no long elaboration. There's simply this end of when the women arrive at the empty tomb. This is how things happen. This is the shorter ending of the Gospel of Mark. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man in a white robe sitting on on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Mark's ending. is a very quick and sudden ending to this gospel. No appearance in this gospel. There's an added ending you will find if you go to verses 9 through 20 that we think were added later. But the shorter ending is curious because what's the nub of it? The nub of it is this being telling the women that he has been raised, he's not here. Tell his disciples that he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. And how does Mark begin? John the Baptist, obviously, in Jordan, but by the 16th verse, It's Jesus in Galilee getting his disciples, gathering them together. It's just curious to me that the Gospel of Mark seems to begin and end on this note of Galilee, a place of work, a place where people are found, a place where people respond fully and wholeheartedly to the presence of God. That, Mark seems to be saying, is where, at the end of the day, we will find the risen Christ. In our workaday world, in our working lives, there Jesus will be asking us a simple question Follow me. And it is all our response that counts. Now, when we hear the word Galilee, we think of a nice seaside place where these men are fishing, a nice fishing village you've all seen those biblical prints, especially if you have one of those Bibles you know with the very very brightly colored illustrations of biblical times and you see those fishermen on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus coming down to see them, perhaps a little green beyond the shore, and then the yellow desert beyond and the Blue waters of the Sea of Galilee. Beautiful image. Well, here I want to tell, share with you a little bit of a personal story. When I hear about Galilee, I do think about the Galilee on the Mediterranean, in the Mediterranean area, but I also think of a little seaside town in Rhode Island when I was a boy. Now, this is a strange, little anecdote for me to tell here in Bennington, Vermont, on a winter's day. Perhaps I'm longing for a little seaside uh, relaxation, but I know few of you listening can relate or perhaps have even visited down there to Rhode Island, near Point Judith, where there was another place called Galilee. And I always found it as a boy was an interesting place because here was a place named after An important biblical town, a place where Jesus started his ministry, gathered his disciples. And having looked in a brightly colored Bible illustration, I knew that the Sea of Galilee was a restful, peaceful place where Jesus would come and call me in. Well, I don't want to disappoint any of you, but Galilee is one of the major fishing ports on the New England coast. More fish. And I didn't do my research, but I could probably cite to you the number of tuna and the other number of fish and fishing fleets that come in and out of Galilee, just like in the Old Testament, except it's a very different image, Galilee. Galilee is a very industrial, full of warehouses with refrigeration engines booming day and night, salt, air, yes but also just that smell of fish, 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 and more fish. Trawlers coming in, oil, gasoline, diesel, dirt, all kinds of things going on in Galilee. Trucks, diesel trucks coming down the road at high speeds and leaving more slowly, groaning under the weight of their newly loaded freight. Galilee is a working town. And it is a gritty working town. James and John, Simon, Andrew. I'm not sure that they can be found in Galilee, Rhode Island today. But I wonder perhaps if the truth isn't closer to that. That when Jesus came to the Sea of Galilee and found these men trying to make their living, trying to feed not just themselves, but everybody with a need for food. But it wasn't something more like that than that Eden-like idyll under some seaside tree. The Sea of Galilee is a real and gritty place. Happily, it's sandwiched between Narragansett Beach, which is a fine expanse for surfing on one side, and Sand Hill Pove, which is where the little kids would go, because the waves were not so big on that side of the water. I know about this, and I speak about it fondly. It put me in mind of me thinking about my aunt, my Aunt Margaret. Now, she wasn't my aunt. She was my great-aunt. She was my mother's aunt, my grandmother's sister. Aunt Margaret lived in Point Judith, right by Galilee. We'd go down and visit a little... Shack she had near the, very near the water, but not on the water. It was crammed in with a lot of other seaside shacks. Here in the church, I would estimate that her house was probably about the size of, oh, six of our box queues put together, maybe a little bit longer. Had the advantage in that New England way of having one of those outdoor showers so that when you came home from the beach, you could wash the beach sand off. She had that little shack which she shared with her partner, another woman, who she lived with all her life. The two of them, Aunts Margaret and Sabra. It's the only way we knew them. Those two maiden aunts who lived there together in Galilee. They had had hard lives of work, Sabra. Uh, was a supervisor, had risen to become a supervisor in the textile mills in Rhode Island. And Aunt Margaret, I, we didn't know much, I didn't inquire much as to her work career, but I just knew that for a time she worked in the textile mills. And they had been lucky enough at some time, probably after World War II, to buy this little postage stamp plot of land near the seashore, away from the city and away from the mills. And these two were able to create a small life for themselves down there by the ocean. I did some more research on my Aunt Margaret. I was close to her simply because towards the end of her life she became ill and Sabra died before she did. And so it was Margaret who survived and lived alone down there for a while. We had great memories of going down. We didn't visit too often, but going down, going to the beach, spending the day, having a picnic and a cookout, wonderful things. Margaret, as I've said, lived alone for a while and then became ill and had a stroke and finally came to our house. And... I spent some time, and it was probably around my 15th year, trying to teach her again to walk after the stroke. I remember she was fairly grateful to me. She ascribed a lot of her ability to regain some of her stride to the fact that I would come home from school and kind of guide her walking around the house. I felt flattered that she thought that I was such a help in teaching her to walk again. I, for myself, was fairly selfish because Aunt Margaret had a very Aunt Margaret, great-aunt-looking Plymouth duster, a white car. Uh, I was 15 and a half years old and had a driver's license, and Aunt Margaret had a car. She could walk, but she couldn't walk too fast, and she couldn't necessarily get to the window to see how often I took out her Plymouth and went on adventures after doing my noble and altruistic part of the afternoon then being free, because she did give me permission. She said, oh, you could take my car if you need it. I'm not sure whether she checked the odometer to see exactly how much I took her up on that generous offer. So I was close to my Aunt Margaret. And in thinking about her and Galilee and her life with her partner Sabra, I went back to understand that she was one of several children, my grandmother, my aunt Margaret, there was another aunt Mildred, there was some two other male children. Family, where was the father, you asked? The father was absent. There was a family of three girls and at least two boys, and the father was absent. Scotsman. He was in our family law a near duel. Well so he was at least a near do well. He virtually abandoned his wife and her three female children and his two male sons and really was never heard from. The only thing I can figure is if Prohibition ever came about during the times he was alive, he never participated. That's one way of saying it. Looking at the 1915 census, Aunt Margaret was 15 years old. My grandmother was 12 years older than she, and there was another girl who was, when Aunt Margaret was 15, she, Mildred, was 17. Now, oddly enough, in 1915, in the census, it lists occupations. There's nothing odd about that, but it lists the occupations. The mother, my great-grandmother, was listed as head of household, something usually that the male took. There was no male in this household. It was my great-grandmother, head of household. Then next came my grandmother, and she was listed at age 27, still living at home, and her occupation was a spooler in a cotton mill. And then came Aunt Mildred, age 17, in high school, of course, right? Absolutely not. Aunt Mildred, age seventeen, was a drawer in a cotton mill. And then came Aunt Margaret. Age fifteen, she was a handler in a cotton mill. All three girls were working in that household to keep it going. My great-grandmother also had two male boarders in the house. I wonder if there had been a census in 1912 when Margaret was only 12, whether it would have still showed her as a handler in a cotton mill. I never got the chance to ask her that. I wish I did. Perhaps those times when I wasn't rambling around in her car, I could have. Gotten some of the stories she may have been reluctant to say. All of them worked hard. My grandmother, shortly after this, by 1920, was married. Aunt Margaret took off at some point in the Sabra and set up house together. That left Mildred at home taking care of her mother. I don't know for you whether Mildred is the hero, the saint here in this story or not. There was always some degree of feeling in the family that Aunt Margaret had done the wrong thing by leaving home and leaving her mother behind. Aunt Mildred stayed on and my grandmother went on to become married. One other thing about Aunt Margaret, lest you get the wrong impression, She was a member, a very firm member with Sabra, of something called the Gospel Hall. The Gospel Hall was an English, Irish, Scot religious movement. Some of you may know this group by the name Plymouth Brethren. Some of you may be familiar with a kind of a very evangelical denomination, that believed in salvation purely by faith. Some of you may have seen a chart of two roads, the road that leads to perdition and the road that leads to heaven. That was a favorite chart among the gospel hall people. It's still a denomination, still quite active. The Gospel haulers are against a paid clergy. They're against any form of denominationalism. It's just people who come together and have communion and elders and have a very primitive style of Christianity. They're evangelical and dispensational. They refrain from music, accompanied music. They sing, but sing unaccompanied. Aunt Margaret was a firm member of the Gospel Hall, along with Sapernaum. I sometimes think that perhaps her sense that there were two roads, the road to perdition and the road to salvation, did she get that from her absent father? Did she get that sense that there are some things in life that are very wrong and that should be condemned, and there are other things that are just simply the right thing to do, but that was her background. That was how she believed. Every time you got a letter from her, it was written on some stationery with some biblical message. She was a firm believer. The last thing I would say about Aunt Margaret, two last things. One is that at some time when she was living alone, her furnace had problems. She didn't, obviously, being a mill worker all her life, had no money, but... Her furnace broke and uh, was very smoky and bad. It was the gospel hall that bought her a new furnace. And in that one act of simply caring for this maiden lady, one of their own, they showed to me what religion and what a church is all about. They were there for her in a very real and Tangible material way, tending to her needs, not only her spiritual needs, but her material needs. They simply put the furnace in and went away, didn't expect anything more. And I conclude this story of my aunt because of one other thing. And the only reason I'm mentioning it at length today is when her time came and she did die. She wanted to be buried with her companion, Sabra, and that happened. She was buried in the cemetery where Sabra was. Sabra had been buried with other members of her family. We didn't really know that family much at all. And Aunt Margaret was put in with Aunt Sabra. And there's only one name on the grave, Sabra's because the family who owned the plot did not see fit to recognize that my great aunt, my aunt, would be there in a way that her name would be on a tombstone. It's that way to this day, we're attempting to fix it. I think my brother will have some success at some point. But there is, in the attitude of the gospel hall, that speaks so starkly in terms of sin and good and bad, there is in the attitude of the gospel hall which supplied a furnace and the attitude of this other family which cannot even supply a name, that makes me wonder, makes me wonder about how faith comes to us about how we see what has to be done, about how our work and our life and our calling and our day-to-day is where we find God In what we do in small things, whether it's putting in the furnace, whether it's dropping the net, whether it's seeing that a name is on a tombstone, whether it's recognizing the humanity of another person or the presence in the life of someone. All these things are times when perhaps God calls to us, when Jesus is by our side and we have a choice to make. Do we continue on this path, mending nets, or do we turn, drop, and risk everything, and follow him? Amen. Our Him reflects in one way, the story of Galilee. Lord, you have come to the lake shore. to give a word of welcome to everyone who's participating in one way or the other in our service today. Thank you for being part of it. I wanted, I'm wanted i kind of still on my sermon a little bit, trying to figure out who, who was the saint or the hero in that. Was it my great-great-grandmother who raised that family by herself? Well, yeah, she actually didn't raise them by herself. She so yeah, had three of the girls working. But is she the hero? Is my Aunt Mildred the hero? Who is the hero there? There are several different candidates. And why did I spend all that time speaking about that today, aside from one of the points I make in the sermon? Uh, the fact that my aunt, great aunt, has no name marked on a grave is additional reason to mention her. It's the ability to carry someone in our hearts. It's even in the life of Christ Himself that we see that there is no monument. But it's the words and the memory and the actions and the lived presence, uh, that is important. That's one reason why I kind of keep her memory active and wanted to lift it up today. Also, should note with the, um, gospel hall, lest we're coming up on annual meeting and lest anyone get ideas, they don't pay a clergy and they don't, though they believe in singing, they don't believe in instruments. So here's an excellent opportunity to reduce staff costs. In my research on the Gospel Hall, I'm not quite sure how they feel about office administrators, but two out of three is pretty, uh, pretty substantial. So um, I wonder about that. But I am thankful in our church that we have a ministry, that we have music, and that we have sermons delivered every Sunday. I hope you find it valuable, too. And that's one way of me first being able to thank Jean Marie Callahan for the work she does in the music aspect of our worship and to thank Nancy Andrews for the work she does in getting our church office and program and materials together every week and remind you that these things don't just drop out of the sky, that we need your help. So that's one reason we take up a morning offering. Hopefully, if anyone's having trouble with your furnace, I'm not sure who you could call, but uh, having just preached my sermon, uh, I would like to say that hopefully in our church, in addition to the day-to-day work of running a church organization, that we find time for benevolence for being, being able to do things in the community, and for one another. That's, after all, why we all exist here at the Old First Church. Now that I've raised all those cans of worms, I am going to call for the morning offering, but before I do, I am going to invite you to participate in this morning offering by Sending something to the First Congregational Church, One Monument Circle, Old Bennington, Vermont, 05201. And in that way, you can be part of our virtual morning offering. The morning offering for the work of our church will now be received. Give thee but thine own, whate'er the gift may be. All that we have is thine alone. I trust, O Lord, from thee. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, come to us in this season. Be alive to us in our work, in our family, in our friendships, in our life. Be alive to us and call that we might follow you, that we might live in just and loving and good ways, that we might recognize in others your presence and your face, that we might see this world as a place of potential and hope. Give us the ability in our day to change, give us the ability to speak so that change might occur. Teach us always to be compassionate, allow us to take time for others and for ourselves, keep us humble, keep us strong and courageous. Enable us not only to live, but to live with joy, to see and embrace beauty, to understand the delicate web of this life, to appreciate this world we are given which we share and steward. Allow us to number in these days acts of goodness. Allow us to be peacemakers. We pray for our health as a country, as a people, as a community. We pray particularly for those who seek help in these days, who seek to recover from illness from disappointment from hurt. We with all those who care, who give us care, we with our families, Give them hope for good days to come. In this winter time, we look upon our world and wait for a new chapter. May that chapter be full of your presence. May our lives be transformed by that news. Now in silence, we make our prayer to you. Amen. And as Jesus taught us, we pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Before we go on to our last hymn, just two other points. And this one is just another point on my Aunt Margaret. Just to say that it's not so bad when you go from being 15 working at a loom, at a cotton mill, to... Ending your life at a nice little cottage by the seashore with someone you can enjoy your time with and have a nice Plymouth, white Plymouth, to go with it. That's not the worst life in the world, and I think my Aunt Margaret was quite grateful for all she was given and all she enjoyed. I'm going to rest talking about her and remind us all in this day of, pandemic that we're meeting remotely, but we are thinking about some what we're calling soft openings of the church. So if you're listening to this and you don't know what I'm talking about, check with the church office to what a soft opening might entail, and you'll learn more about it there. And as we conclude, this last hymn which I referenced in my sermon, They Cast Their Nets in Galilee, is actually... um, one I I tend to like quite a bit myself and it shows that other side of what it is to follow not always ending up on the lake shore in a nice cottage but sometimes the idea to follow to give everything up to dedicate your life to something uh, you don't have the success of a Jonah you don't have everybody do everything you want and so without For further elaboration, I'm just going to call for the final hymn, They Cast Their Nets in Galilee. God bless us and keep us. May God's face shine upon us and give us peace this day and evermore. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening. I know during this week's service, I didn't give my usual shout out. Thanks to Jean Marie Callahan, who is our organist, and also to Nancy Andrews, who helps out in innumerable ways. So thanks to both of them. If you're listening to the longer service, you will have thanks given to them. But if you chose our speedy, busy day service option, and chose instead this shorter sermon. You didn't get that benefit. In the week ahead, be of good cheer, live your faith and be thankful for every day. Do something good for yourself and for someone else. Permission to podcast and stream the service music is granted under license number 3009679 from CCLI with all other creative rights
1: reserved.